from the moon, planet Earth is a beautiful sphere of blues, greens and swirling white clouds. It is a seemingly peaceful composition that holds within it everything, quite literally everything. All the people, places and stories of our existence. How can we decipher all those experiences, all those elements that distinguish us as human beings? And how do we interpret the greatness of the natural world, the effects of climate change and, above all, how everything is interconnected? You can see how the world is going on and on today with the right wings, with the nationalistic, populistic uh, uh, racism. Everything in the world is raising to put borders, frontier everywhere. Triennale Milano, Italy's foremost institution for design and contemporary culture, will be hosting its 23rd international exhibition next year in 2022. It is entitled Unknown Unknowns, and so this podcast will attempt to tackle some of these vast questions, seeking perspectives rather than answers. Our metaphorical vantage point giving us some distance and hopefully some clarity, all from the moon. If you look at a map of telegraphic cables from the beginning of the 20th century, at first sight, it looks almost identical to the contemporary counterpart map of fiber optic cables. I hope my work could project a more hopeful voice in order to encourage a future generation of Afghan women to bring new representations of the East into being not for the Western viewers, but actually for themselves and for their own communities. Using the tools and brains from the worlds of culture, design, science, philosophy, medicine and more besides, we'll be taking you on a journey through time, space and knowledge with me, David Pleasant. In this episode three of From the Moon, we're going to be crossing borders, referring to a much-used figure of speech when looking at the globe. But rather than looking at borders as the traditional divisions between countries, nation-states or cultures, we're going to attempt to find out what these demarcations, these often artificial lines, these separations really look like from our human and often personal perspective. So we are looking at frontiers, both visible and invisible, on this episode. Born in 1989 and having made a journey of migration familiar to those fleeing conflict and economic strife, Hangama Amiri finally settled in Canada in 2005. She is now pursuing a career as an artist. In 2020, she graduated as a Canadian Fulbright Scholar at Yale University and also exhibited her solo show Bazaar, a recollection of home at the T293 Gallery in Rome. My name is uh, Hanga Mamiri. I am originally born in Peshawar, Pakistan. When my parents were refugees, I guess this was during the civil war in Afghanistan. But soon I grew up in Kabul, Afghanistan. Then we were a refugee to Pakistan again and back to Dushanbe, Tajikistan. And in 2005, we immigrated to Canada. Um, all I can say, um, as an artist, my art practice have always been influenced by the exploration of the cross-cultural dialogues like childhood memories and also language and diasporic bodies. But um, my textile pieces have always been um, kind of explored the personal diaspora to investigate uh, the politics of gender in Islamic culture 
and also celebrating the feminine subjects that have been taboo. And um, on that theme, uh, we're we're talking about um, frontiers in this episode, frontiers visible and invisible on our planet, uh, demarcations and separations that, that continue to affect so many people. Very much interlinked in that uh, notion of frontiers is is the notion of memory, uh, the personal, the social history of frontiers and the places that they divide, the places either side of those frontiers. Your latest work, Bizarre, A Recollection of Home, as its title suggests, is, has memory as a central theme. Could you int- introduce this theme and maybe also maybe how as a child you remember perceiving frontiers? Of course. Um, I think I can just start by describing this exhibition and what sort of themes I explored in this space. Um, so this exhibition, Bazaar, A Recollection of Home, it presents a new body of work that are assembled in a sort of monumental textile installations. Um, I explored I explored kind of different you know topics like such as politics of globalization, the consumer exchanges between East and West, and more specifically social and gender norms uh, within the um, Afghan bazaar. So in this project, I'm basically reweaving my childhood memories of the bazaar and kind of like you know transforming it to offer my viewers a sense of place and time, but also an awareness of the politicized present. Hangama tells me that the notion of frontiers resonates very vividly throughout much of her work and process. Most striking for her is the way in which frontiers are embedded in her memory, the things that she can remember from her childhood. But memories of people and places and that which might be imagined are so often intertwined. Frontiers, perceived or not, are both visible and invisible for Hangama, and so her practice becomes a process of attempting to express that. So sometimes memory becomes very fuzzy. It's not a clear cut. It's, so it becomes like an invisible, you know, like frontiers for me. And that also relates, you know, to the fact that how much I have moved from place to place that my grown-ups as a refugee, as a child refugee, I have a certain of kind of like not understanding or not being so comprehended about my surroundings sometimes. Like I don't have that conscious of a clear-cut perspective when it comes to borders, when it comes to knowing countries to countries. As a child, Hangama's experience of moving around and being displaced had the effect on her of not really knowing or understanding her surroundings. Like all migrants, she found herself removed from her context. What she did retain were fragments of memories, and now she's able to pick up on these by using certain colours, textures, and even suggestions of architecture and specific spaces. Moving between so many countries, from Pakistan to Tajikistan, back to Afghanistan and eventually to Canada, Hangama says that even her notion of geography is distorted. The concept of mapping to her did not exist. So, in a way, her work could be seen as a personal mapping of memory, sewing together the patchwork of places and experiences that informed her childhood. And the other things that, in my textile pieces that I explore, is a lot about language. And language is something 
is a very difficult form of expression for me. Even here talking with you, I have a hard time explaining what is exactly that I want to tell you. And sometimes I lose my, you know, conscious of like having like a directive, you know, point of view, you know. Sometimes I express my I express my work or my practice more better than uh in my Farsi language than in English. And sometimes I'm more comfortable expressing my work with English than in Farsi. So they always have this battle of like language and my understanding of in this space. It becomes abstract again, right? It becomes again invisible, you know, frontiers again. Can you kind of take us to the bazaar? Um, can you describe what we're seeing, what's being depicted, some of the people, some of the places that you uh, that you include in this world that you've created? All I can say that this exhibition is building a cultural location that celebrates women's representation and their presence in workplace. And we are being in the context of post-war Afghanistan or post-war society of Afghanistan. But in this exhibition, I'm also intentionally working against the ideas of the space as being predominated by men in this new body of work. As we walk through Hangama's imagined bazaar, we are immediately confronted with large-scale panoramic textile pieces. The scale is actually very human, with life-size doors, objects and people inhabiting this intensely colourful urban landscape. Shopfronts appear with the names of women owners elaborately sewn in Afghan script at each of the premises depicted. In fact, we discover that this is a bazaar that is largely owned and run by women. And above this installation, there's a banner that says a vod in a very silky blue fabric that has word written in English, vod, and in Farsi language written her name, that this portrait or this lady from Afghanistan wants to be elected as a president. So you have to vote. The music you're hearing is called To Mars and Back from the album Letters to My Best Friend by Kaiz Esar. The second gallery, it speaks more for women and by women because there are banners, there are two banners. One is a political banner and the other one, you know, represents a athlete, a woman athlete. So in this space, the aesthetic and the taste and the color changes because it has a very different point of view, because the whole space has been represented for women. And these are the things that actually made by women too. So as a viewer, you're also being kind of weaved into a certain sort of dialogue, that one dialogue that these artworks are having with each other, but also as a viewer, you also become part of that community dialogue. The detail really shines through. I was lucky enough to see them uh, in person and the the detail you mentioned the the nail salon there uh, all the colored nails are lined up intricately uh, woven the the furniture in the salon and also uh, these faces you mentioned uh, uh, headscarfed women uh, shining with with smiles uh, shining out there, there's a, there's a, a positive optimistic feeling um, and that that's, I mean, would you, would you describe uh, these worlds, these almost social utopias that you create um, 
as as hopeful as um a kind of uh, is, is it almost like a political vision that you are uh you have as a, as, a, as an artist or as a per- as a personal vision perhaps that you have um to to cross these uh, frontiers and boundaries that we've been talking about is that is that a kind of a mission that you have of course i feel like I've been I've been very much interested to somehow create works that could engage a dialogue with social and geopolitical issues from a distance. Once that I could say that as an artist, I have the privilege um, and the position when it comes to talking about politics of representation and the and the various kind of diasporic you know communities that are living within the United States that I'm living in here as well. So I'm especially interested in bringing contemporary Afghan women's voices and experiences in my work because of the fact that there are a lot of stories from my world and theirs that haven't been seen or heard of or haven't been represented even. Um, And especially like considering um, the specific cultural perspective is, is definitely kind of missing within the larger cultural landscape of the United States and else. For Hangama, it seems that art provides a space to centre the often unheard and underrepresented voices of Afghan women, bringing cultural and historical value to them within the contemporary art world that she is now inhabiting. So by creating textile pieces that reference an imagined social history, she is envisioning something new, and therefore traversing geopolitical frontiers. And I can wrap up my conversation by saying that, like, if I can use my tool in order to paint a different picture, I hope my work could also project a more hopeful voice in order to encourage a future generation of Afghan women to bring new representations of the East into being not for the Western viewers, but actually for themselves and for their own communities. So that would be my one of the advices, even for myself. Whenever I come to studio, I tell that to myself, that it's a really great position that I'm living in the West in order to find a space to you know, talk about these things for the East. <laughs> That was Afghan-Canadian artist Hangama Amiri there, taking us around her imagined Kabul Bazaar on this episode of From the Moon, in which we are looking at frontiers. The notions of memory and of the imagined are themes that will be coming across again in the show, and our next guest shows us just how important it is to document what is happening at the world's frontiers. Born in 1931 in Switzerland of a Hungarian Jewish father and a Swiss mother, Brazilian photographer Claudia Andujar's transitory early life, in which she emigrated to Brazil to flee the Holocaust in Europe, itself shows the violence and tragedy that frontiers are often associated with. From 1970, Andujar began documenting the plight of the Yanomami people in Brazil's Amazon rainforest. Eventually, Andujar traversed another frontier from photography and art into activism. 
To talk about Claudia and Dujar's work and the Yanomami people and their culture, we have Tiago Nogueira, curator of the exhibition entitled The Yanomami Struggle, which was put on by the Fondation Cartier in Paris and travelled to the Triennale Museum in Milan in 2020. Tiago works at the Instituto Moreira Sales in Sao Paulo. She took up photography because she wanted to break some barriers and really communicate with people. She didn't master Portuguese when she arrived in Brazil, and photography and image making was a way for her to establish some kind of relation. And I think for the first 15 years that she was working in Brazil, from 55 to the 70s, she was using photography as a way to understand the people, understand the country, and look for the sense of belonging. But she arrived in the Anomami to do the, let's say, with the grant, uh, because she, when she, 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 she discovered the, the Anomami people were living in, in a very isolated part of the Amazonia. And so it was a moment where she kind of fell in love with them because they were, you know, living f- for so many years there and they had an entire society and she just, uh, she was able to access that society and, and they were living in a certain peace and tranquility at that time. She couldn't, uh, imagine, and no one could, that the dictatorship in Brazil that had started in 1964 was going to launch a major plan in the 70s to develop what they call develop uh, the Amazon, that they also called the, as a, they also uh, referred to as an empty Greenland, um, and because of that gigantic public. Uh, program of investment from the dictatorship, things started to change during the decades that Claudia was working there, but they couldn't really imagine that this is going to be a tragic story of contact and violence and oppression and a real clash of civilizations. And, and Claudia was working in, right in the, in the heart of that when this happened. So actually, I think she, she, she was completely shocked she was doing this, you know, artistic project. She was, she had fallen in love with these people. She had decided to make their, their, their this community, her family, the Anomami, are faced with our violence and greed and economic uh, structure, and 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 she was, I think, she was shocked. And and as you said, her, then she, she reconnected that with her own story of devastating and of extermination of political power to really eliminate an entire society because she just realized that the genocide that she had faced when she was young could happen again with these people that were completely helpless in terms of defending themselves. So Claudia Andujar, who first encountered the Yanomami people as a means of photographic and artistic documentation, became embedded with their lives and struggle against the destructive forces of Brazil's dictatorship and its aggressive mission of so-called economic development of the Amazon. Then the dramatic circumstances she found herself in led her work to take an activist and political role. So was this a gradual and purposeful transition on the part of Andujar? I think there's a big cut on that story because when when Claudia starts to you know use her images and her voice to denounce the situation with the Anomami, she's expelled from the Anomami land by the Brazilian government because of uh, allegedly because of national security reasons, and uh, she has to spend one year in São Paulo trying to go back, and I think that's the major shift 
on her understanding because she's desperate to go back and help people. And, and she, in a way, understands that her art and her artistic exploration will not be effective to try to save people and to, to change the situation. It was now 1977 and Andujar's career enters a crucial and transformative period. Finding herself in a form of internal exile in Sao Paulo, expelled from the Yanomami lands and the people she was trying to help, the photographer was turning into a political activist. Together with tribe representative Davi Kopenawa Yanomami, she created an NGO to campaign for the legal demarcation and therefore protection of the Yanomami territory. Claudia and Davi travelled the world raising awareness, making this invisible struggle visible. They were to devote the next decade to this campaign for demarcation, and it wasn't until much later in 1992 that progress for the Yanomami protection began to be seen. So in, during the 80s, Claudia is not doing, she, she has moved away from an artistic scenario and she's really engaged in activism and she's really engaged in, in raising these funds and, and organizing health programs, educational programs and protests and campaigns and all she can with the group of people that she's working with to try to really, really try to, to stop the killing and to, to, to show to people the killing because I think the killing was invisible in the... Uh, big cities, even in Brazil. People had no idea there was, you know, indigenous uh, living in the Amazonia and they had no idea uh, of what was going on there because of the progress. Um, so it's a crucial decade. And, and the major uh, goal of this period is really to demarcate a continuous piece of land and not isolated lands for the Yanomami to make sure the way they live is respected and is protected because they also needed to, you know, they, they are more than 300 communities, so they needed to circulate, they need the rivers to be clean, the animals to reproduce, and all this, they needed an entire ecosystem to, to, to be able to keep on living the way they want to live. Rio Centro, a suburb of Rio de Janeiro. The United Nations Conference on Environment and Development is about to begin. Thousands of diplomats, environmentalists, and journalists arrive for the largest UN meeting ever held. The aim is to seek common action to protect the planet. Over a hundred heads of state and government... This is finally, against all odds, this is finally accomplished in 92, at the eve of the big... Uh, United Nations Conference on Climate in, in Rio de Janeiro, and with the pressure of many international uh, organizations and countries uh, against the Brazilian government. And that was accomplished in 92, which was considered by any means a, a major victory. Um, the next years, Claudia is dedicated to other programs and small activities, education, health programs, and etc., uh, but no one could imagine that Bolsonaro was going to be elected in 2018 and, and was going to, you know, bring back the same ignorance, the same violence and the same stupidity against indigenous populations in Brazil and was also going specifically to challenge the Yanomami demarcation. As Tiago mentioned there, 2018 saw the election of far-right populist politician Jair Bolsonaro as Brazil's president. 
Bolsonaro has gone about enacting regressive policies, has sided with climate change deniers and has pushed for more exploitation of Brazil's vast natural resources, especially those found in the Amazon. Harking back to the days of the dictatorship in both rhetoric and vision, Bolsonaro has even argued that keeping the Yanomami in their protected lands is somehow inhumane, pushing instead the notion of so-called integration and economic development. This is taking Brazil and the Yanomami back several decades, argues Tiago. I think the, the, the political view, well, there is no political view, but what he's saying is... Uh, he, he, he is patronizing because he's saying he's trying to say to tell the Anomami the way they want to the, the way they want they have to be or they have to act or or uh, he's repeating uh, the integration the stupid idea of integration that we had during the dictatorship which means the Anomami are uh, uh, primitive or someone that are a, a, a society that's living on a past and they need to be integrated in the Western society to try to live the way we live. So he doesn't respect at all the idea that all the people and all the communities can determine the way they want to live and they have to determine and they have to be uh, heard and they have to take their own decisions. And I think this is this is what Claudia and Davi were and not this group of people were fighting for at the time. You know, it's it's up to the Anomami decide how they want to live, where they want to live, and we have to respect that and we have to defend and protect that because we want to defend diversity and the richness of the of this country. So it's 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 uh, when we're talking about frontiers and invisibility, it's really important to understand that it's this is not only a question on the Anomami, it's also a question on the um, hundreds of indigenous populations that we have in Brazil that have been exterminated for a long time, actually since the, the colonial period. And they have been reduced to very few, and they, they are completely invisible in our society. I think it's the first, now it's, we're having a very interesting movement now, where we, we're having the first, you know, or the, the, the strongest uh, indigenous leaders and, and really indigenous people going into politics and really starting to speak out and to speak out for themselves. And that's a very, very powerful moment in Brazil because uh, we tended to really ignore the indigenous question. One very last final question. It seems like things are, almost have gone full circle uh, for um, Claudia and Duja in terms, you know, now uh, so many decades after she started her career, there's this kind of revived activism and it feels like uh, you and, and other people working in the cultural sector, curators and, 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 and other people are, are kind of activists once more. They're, they're all, or maybe that never really stopped, would you say? Do you feel like you're, you're more, uh, your, your role is, is an activist one? It's impossible not to react when you get, when you get in touch with those questions. I mean, I, I've um, arrived at the Yanomami struggle because of Claudia. I'm a curator of photography. I was fascinated with the work the work of Claudia, and I wanted to understand that work better. And actually, I wanted to really reconnect the artistic dimension to the political dimension of that work because I I, I heard a lot about. Claudia being an activist, but I thought that that story was not, you know, properly uh, told. When you really get closer 
and and when you when you know what's going on and what we are doing because because of the way we live we decided to live to these people uh you really cannot be you know neutral or you 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 really have to do something uh but i think that's only the personal level because i i also feel that there's uh, i work in an institution and in a museum and the the mission of the museum is really to understand art and the complexities of art. It's not to be an active uh, uh, institution into the politics, but it's to make politics with its art. And I think the beautiful thing Claudia has to teach us is really how photography and how an archive and how a, story, a life story is also a political story and has to be preserved in all its context. It's, it cannot be seen only isolated in the art world. When I, when I started this project, I was rev, uh, in a way um, disturbed by the fact that Claudia was being collected and was being very you know, uh, coveted by museums. But I felt that the, the, the ethical commitment that was behind her photographs, that really made her photographs exist and, and allow her photographs to circulate, was being forgotten or was not visible. And I wanted to, you know, to, to, to be able to shed some light on that. That was Tiago Nogueira, who works at the Instituto Moreira Sales in Sao Paulo, talking to me about the Yanomami people in Brazil's rainforest, as well as the work and activism of photographer Claudia Andujar. Tiago touches on the notions of invisibility there, how a whole people and culture can almost appear invisible in the consciousness of another more dominant society. Next, on this examination of the world's frontiers, we stay with the intangible and apparently out of sight. The production, use and storage of data on the planet is very hard to fathom, hence it appearing almost invisible to us. Its effects on the physical, natural and societal world, however, are very real. From Sao Paulo to Milan now for our next guest. So I am Ippolito Pestellini Laporelli and I'm an architect and curator. I'm currently based in Milan. Uh, one year ago I founded an interdisciplinary agency called 2050 Plus in the city. And since a few years, I also teach at the Royal College of Arts in London, a studio focused on the relationship between data and the material world. And on that subject of data, um, I wanted to kind of introduce the, the, the subject of data within the context of frontiers. This episode, we're, we're investigating uh, some of the world's many frontiers, environmental, geopolitical, visible and invisible. So... When you look down onto planet Earth um, from our imaginary studio up here in the moon and with your kind of research background and your design and architecture background, what do you see? Um, and is, is that <laughs> data related? Yeah, it is data related. Um, I see a layered uh, sort of entangled system of digital infrastructure that ranges from remote sensing devices such as satellites to fiber optic cables, switch stations, data centers, to the various devices populating our cities and our own domestic spaces. Um, we discussed an article, I think, uh, together uh, where I was referring to these uh, incredible figures uh, about the amount of data that is produced every day, and we are literally drowning in data. 
And as we drown in data, such system, uh, such digital infrastructure and its implications grow to unprecedented scales and density especially. I always refer to a statistic that has become very famous in the past years that 90% of the world's data was generated just in the last two years. And this is from 2016, so you can expect, of course, that now things are even going faster. Everything that happens online, and by extension, the entire spectrum of our human-to-machine set of operations, uh, depends on the industrial architecture of data. Therefore, all our lives by now depend on that. And um, this is where our digital existences are stored and mined in this strange and ambiguous cycle of protection and extraction. So, yeah. So... um I'm interested in also talking about that process of extraction. Um, and I mean, even the, the sort of metaphors that we use, we talk about mining uh, data, we talk about data farms. There's this sort of um, uh, physical uh, metaphors that that we use uh, for something digital and sort of um, intangible. Um, I, I also want to kind of talk about the geography and geology of, of data, what, what impact it 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 has on on the the physical planet and and what what research you've done in, into that well um you know to uh, understand uh contemporary media culture any media in fact um one must look for those um material realities that precede the media themselves so earth history geological formations minerals energy on which the whole apparatus of media depends on. So also digital, the, whole, the complex system of digital infrastructure relies on the availability of energy, geological resources, space, you know. Um, so you, we could talk about the sort of new geography. That's maybe the geography that we look at from your moon studio. <laughs> um, and one that needs together the infrastructure of networks, the mesh of fiber optic cables and, and so forth. Um, data centers, electromagnetic waves, and the extraction of resources. So data mining, as you point out, goes hand in hand with the mining of minerals that keep this complex system running. Um, and uh, in a way, you know, we looked also at the specificities of how devices are built from, um, you know, a hard drive, an iPhone. To build an iPhone, you basically need the entire spectrum of the periodic cable of the periodic table. So you need literally materials coming from five continents. Um, and the environmentally and socially compromised mining landscape, uh, I can refer to some very famous cases: coltan in Congo, lithium in Chile, neodymium in China, are part of the complex planetary datascape and its supply chain. So whenever we hold something in our hands, we should have in mind, basically, that this has planetary consequences. And then there is the whole energy question, because you, you mentioned you know, uh, environmental impact. So mining is one thing, uh, but also data production, consumption, aggregation continues to grow at this extremely uh, unprecedented expo exponential rates. Um, data centers as urban typology or suburban typologies, uh, it's uh, 
are rapidly expanding. Um, in a way, all this digital infrastructure is being built to shape our future, but it's contributing to its destruction. Um, if data centers were a uh, country, they would account, uh, just to give a, a statistics, um, to the 11th most polluting nation in the world. In our studio uh, at the Royal College of Arts, we have done some experiments also thinking about a different culture of data. We call them permaculture, data permaculture. Imagining, imagining for example, new models uh, um, of data cultivation. So again, going back to the metaphor of data farming as farming in a way, we ask ourselves, would it be possible to cultivate data, to aggregate data, to store data, um, relying on the unstable course of the sun and on the winds for energy, and decide to harvest data only when resources are available, like any other material production? Right. So um, th th there's kind of some practical ways in which you're investigating um, this kind of over overproduction, over-reliance of data. Um, I wanted to go back to um, the kind of notion of frontiers. Um, is I mean, it, it, we, we have all this kind of entangled digital infrastructure. Uh, everything is so connected, um, mainly thanks to all, all this data that you're talking about. Um, but there is still a massive kind of digital divide. Um, so in, in many ways, frontiers have been traversed. We've crossed frontiers. We, we can fly everywhere. We can... Um, keep connected like never before but but there's still divisions very much in place maybe even this age of information has reinforced those divisions would you agree and um is is that the implication of of some some of what you're um you're researching and and, and trying to highlight uh yeah and and i agree i think these frontiers have been made even more uh, even stronger or more tangible in a way, even when we talk about, you know, uh, information technology. Uh, so we said it before, uh, the digital infrastructure is entangled. It coexists against different layers of the material world. Um, and that goes from the availability, as we said, of energy, resources and, and space, but also to the vast range of corporate and state uh, sovereignties that regulate its operations. So there are at least two not so invisible um, frontiers when we look at the way our datascape unfolds through the planet. On the one hand, the complex and diverse regimes of data regulation um, that has led to the emergence of different digital ecosystems, uh, which are dominated by different players. They act through different protocols. When you think, for example, at the, um, between, for, for example, the US, Europe, China, or Russia. And privacy, for example, is a way to look at this. And, and the way and it's basically uh, different regulations about privacy or access to data uh, of users uh, has generated very diverse data ecosystems. On the other end, uh, let's say there are, let's say, um, what is normally called a digital divide, you know, between areas of the world uh, that have access to extremely efficient digital infrastructures and areas of the world which don't. And this has generated, let's say, what we called, what might be called uh, a diverse set of geographies of opportunities in a way. So, you know, uh, the way the planetary mesh of fiber optic cables is laid out uh, offshore 
generates this kind of access to or non-access to um, ultra-fast broadband capacity. Ippolito says that data, something that we have become so reliant on, is not necessarily a story of increased worldwide connectivity. Data production and storage might be something that is largely invisible to us, but so is the way in which it travels. And now we touch again on the subject of mapping. Ippolito's research is highlighting how much of the world's data and information technology is connected, or rather still not connected, following pre-existing geopolitical mapping that is more than a century old. I'll let Ippolito explain this more. In this sense, if you look at a map of telegraphic cables from the beginning of the 20th century, um, at first sight, it looks almost identical to the contemporary counterpart map of um, fiber optic cables. So, um, and this is interesting, you know, like telegraph networks were constructed to make intercontinental governance over colonialist empires possible. Um, today, most of submarine cables uh, uh, follow the same routes, partially uh, because of pragmatism. It's easier and also safer to lay out a cable down a route that already exists. Uh, partially because these power structures have not changed that much. So that's interesting. You're, it is literally reinforcing kind of th there's this continuity with, with something 100 years old that, that, that cannot be changed in a way. There's this kind of like intransigence. Yeah, it's basically n not political, but um, based, of course, on the um, actions taken by corporations uh, on a global scale. So the neocolonial nature, we could call it, of digital infrastructure is mirrored by the north to south direction that such cables follow and by their, their ownership. When you look at a current a uh, picture of uh, uh, fiber optic uh, submarine cables, you can really trace cables ca going from the UK to Western Africa, from Portugal to Angola and Mozambique, and things are changing, but very slowly. So, for example, I was really surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised, by, the, 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 by um, an event in 2018. The first cable between Angola and Brazil was actually laid out uh, it's called SACS, and it only happened two years ago. Intact, providing a wide range of primary services, from Medicare to food distribution. Grazie. A chi scende in campo senza esitare. Prima del lockdown, la maggior parte delle persone volevano che io salissi. Lockdown, salivo perché la gente aveva paura di questa dimensione dell'algoritmo, di questo movimento, che è sintetica, che è fibra, che è eterea, ma... A recent investigation has put under judicial administration the Italian branch of Uber Eats. And talking about uh, kind of another physical expression or physical reality, let's call it, of uh, of this world of of data and and uh, in inequality, let's call it. Um, you uh, at the beginning of of the pandemic, back back in March, you worked on a short film um, that that really kind of highlighted some some of the the inequalities that that you were seeing. Can you can you tell tell me about that and 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 perhaps describe describe the film? 
Yeah, uh, the film uh, was called, is called Riders Not Heroes, and in a way, um, um, it somehow, it's a work that continues our investigation on the relationship between data and the material world in our daily lives, but this time through the lens of labor, or jig labor. So um, the movie investigates essentially the precarious conditions of food delivery riders in Milan, um, and Somehow it makes a strong case for riders as essential workers lying at the intersection of platform capitalism, jig labor, the refugee crisis, and COVID-19. Um, for us, it was interesting to look at riders because they are a sort of conundrum uh, of tensions and urgencies, and also an ideal lens to, in a way, look back at this extreme condition that we experienced through the first lockdown. Um, in a way, riders are the meeting point uh, of two parts of society that emerged uh, through the lockdown. Those who were locked inside their homes and those who, out of necessity, were forced to leave their homes because they had to go to work, essentially. So two categories that are at the opposite side of the social spectrum, you might say, but they are connected through the interface of a phone, um, which acts in a way as another invisible frontier. And so, again, more invisibility in terms of the world's frontiers. If earlier Ippolito was keen to tell us about those global-scale data frontiers, such as those that are represented by the data channels that follow the paths of cables laid under the oceans 100 years ago, now he focuses on the digital front line, that is, the use of a smartphone by a worker of the gig economy. So we had these really special images of this experience of a rider going through the city that was deserted, completely desolated, except for the riders, other riders from other companies that he would meet through his, um, through his work. Um, then the video moves into the impact of automation and exploitation by large tech platforms, referring to the scandal of illegal gang mastering, which exploded in Milan at the end of this spring. In Milan, the precarity of gig labor meets the precarity of undocumented migrants in the entangled fight for social justice and better living standards. So it became a really special case in a way to actually bring to the surface all these uh, controversies. Obviously, you know, uh, things are not so black and white. It's not that we are, you know, pointing the finger to tech platforms. Also, through our research, we interviewed many, many riders and they said that, they, you know, very frankly said, we need this job, you know, this is our only source of income. So despite we are, criti we are critical of the way food platforms are actually treating us, we need to be out there and we need to actually deliver this food. So when you look at Milan, from this point of view, but this is a condition that you can find in many other cities, uh, we dubbed it as a battlefield because it's in fact really a battlefield combining all these forces. So the refugee crisis, COVID-19, tech platform, jig labor, and so forth. That was architect, curator, and researcher Ippolito Pestellini Laparelli there talking us through some of the information frontiers that divide the world and the battlefields that are being created by the gig economy. So frontiers may be almost imperceivable for some of us, but feel very real for many others. The ever-increasing landscape of data, how it is mined, farmed and stored, is one such case. Some frontiers are yet more invisible, or even psychological. Those frontiers or barriers within ourselves. 
Rabi Mrue is a Lebanese stage and film actor, playwright and visual artist. His works are provocative but can also contain much irony. Rabi began by telling us what comes to mind for him when he hears the word frontier. Thank you so much, David. Actually, uh, this word uh, immediately uh, evoke like a separation, something that separates. It's a kind of a cut between uh, two things, two elements, two countries, uh, between two extremes, between two contrast things. So for me, the frontier is like a sharp line that divides something. It's like a knife or a sword that slashes something between two. The frontier put you like, this is what comes to me in, in mind when I think about, about this. It put you into this uh, dichotomy that you have to choose between this or that. Huh? It evokes a lot of uh, also like uh, personal uh, stories, personal memories from the Civil War. For example, we have the demarcations lines that was... Uh, constructed and built in uh, in the city itself, Beirut, between east and west. So there is also a border that separates us from Israel, from Palestine. There is also a border inside the country that is a zone that protects the other border, the other frontier, and so on. So it's like a very complex history in a way for me at the same time. But let's let's just put like the last thing about what brings to my mind. It's this line that also says that this is the end of something and the beginning of something else, the, the frontier. Rabi mentioned the word dichotomy, the notion of two visions or realities clashing. And indeed, as we've heard about in this episode, whether it's displacement, environmental destruction in the name of economic development, or dividing lines that are drawn across the planet, the notion of a frontier so often comes loaded with violent or aggressive connotations. Rabi also sees a frontier as a point where one thing ends and another thing begins. Again, and still using a metaphor of violence and war, can a frontier also be a double-edged sword, in Rabi's opinion? No, actually, it's not a double-edged sword, because like beginnings uh, is always, in a way, problematic, because it is also very violent and it's very aggressive. And it's also related to those people who control history, who have the power so they can control history and they can declare this is the end of an epoch or, or a period, and this is the beginning of this period. This is the beginning, the start, uh, and what was before, it was something else. Now uh, life starts, now history starts. It starts with me, mainly with dictatorships. Countries, for example, this is the beginnings is all the time coming back. Like we all have like beginnings, beginnings, beginnings. There are like different uh, layers in, uh, in my work that deals with this notion of like uh, frontiers, borders. Uh, for example, like when I'm talking about uh, the Lebanese civil wars, uh, the civil war, uh, actually it's interesting because it creates here and there, but if you look at it carefully, it's not here and there. It's like a frontier between here and here. 
And this is very interesting when you think about it and you, when you start to apply it actually on your work and on your ways of reading events and history, then you start to say like, okay, then this means if it's here and here, the, the frontier, then it's inside me. So I have inside me a frontier. So how I can overcome these borders that are inside me? So you, are you, would you say that you're kind of trying to cross those frontiers or, or overcome them through practice of your, your, your artistic practice? Is that what you're trying to do? Exactly. This is like, uh, in a way, like it's something uh, when I say here and here, first of all, it brings uh, you to do uh, autocriticism, to work on yourself, to provoke yourself instead of provoking your audience, which is, I believe it's easy to provoke the other, but it's not easy to provoke yourself. And uh, also like when you talk about the medium itself that you are working with, like if I'm talking about, let's say, theater, so how you open the theater, open its borders, its frontier, and then you you have open doors and then it uh, you can have whatever and it can go wherever. So the borders are like blended uh, and they are not any more sharp. So Rabi is attempting, as he puts it, to blend borders through his practice. Whether those divisions are to be overcome in himself or on the theatre stage, nothing is ever black and white in this borderless space that Rabi occupies. His method is often focused on theatre but has become increasingly interdisciplinary. Back in 2007, Rabi Mrue's performance piece about the Lebanese civil war entitled How Nancy Wished That Everything Was an April Fool's Joke toured internationally and was initially banned in his own country. In 2012, a series of photographs made with mobile phones showed persons killed during the Syrian civil war. The photos were entitled Pixelated Revolution. And then, from 2018 to 2020, Rabi Mrue worked at the Walker Gallery, Minneapolis, to create the Again We Are Defeated cultural programme, which features artworks including drawings, collages and videos, in which the Berlin-based artist considers the repeated cycles of violence affecting people of the Middle East by examining his own encounters with the conflict as mediated through the news. I would like also to talk about another notion that I experienced in my career is that I always try to fight and to struggle against being labeled as an Arab artist or like Lebanese artist coming from uh, conflict zones. And like because like I started to travel a lot outside my country abroad to present my work, and uh, to my surprise and to my expectation at the same time, is that you can immediately uh, see how your image or my image is already preceded me. It's already there. It crossed the frontier before I arrive, and it's already there with all the cliché, with all the stereotypes. The film starts with the sound of a gun being shot followed by a series of images of rooftops, balconies, walls, windows, and different buildings. The unseen cameraman makes a fast-paced introduction. Suddenly, the eye spots a sniper hiding in the street, 
lurking behind the wall of a building in the right-hand corner. The eye loses the sniper. It tries to spot him again. It hovers left and right, up and down. Nothing. 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 So how can you fight your own image, the image that is constructed in the other's minds? It's not an easy thing because most of the time the image is much more stronger than you. We all the time tried to be smart and to reside on the thresholds. Not to be here, not to be there, like if there is a separation line, there is a frontier. It's the question how we can live in the thresholds, how we can look into the in-betweens, the no-man lands, the situation of in-betweens, like, for example, the sans-papier in, uh, everywhere in the world, like those who are like refugees or like missings, absence, the ghosts, all these notions, huh? these are like situations in the in-between and you cannot catch them. They, they don't belong to the world of, let's say, of the world of the dead, but also they don't belong to the world of the living. They are roaming between the two worlds. So how can we bring these actually and work on them? This is another issue related to the frontier. So Arabi thinks that mentally and artistically, at least, we should try and make more of these ambiguous grey areas that can be found at the frontier. Maybe, in fact, we should traverse or even transcend the simplistic division that the frontier represents. A richer and more interesting cultural space might well be found instead. And you can see like how the world is going on and on today with the right wings, with the nationalistic, populistic uh, racism. Everything in the world is raising to put borders, frontier everywhere. And you cannot anymore reside on the thresholds. You have immediately on the border to declare you are with us or you are not with us on the frontier. If you are not, then you are deported. Huh? So actually what one can do in this case is maybe to try to be smart again and to be in a constant move between all the borders if it's possible. And then you are here and there and neither there near here. Huh? Maybe like ghosts. Again, we go back to the idea of the ghosts. That was film, theatre and visual artist Rabi Mrue there taking us to the threshold of this episode and the next. We have seen that the world's frontiers can be perceived or real and can be imagined or even in the mind. They intend to separate but often are artificial constructs that hide from us other, perhaps more truthful visions of the planet. Next time, we'll look at the world at night, taking stock of the growing cities that consume and burn bright as the world is under the cover of darkness. We'll hear from Hanru Hu, artistic director of the Maxi Museum in Rome, Ricky Burdett of the London School of Economics and Political Science, urbanist and writer from Tirana in Albania, Yoni Babocci, and Angela Rui, Milan-based design critic and curator. This podcast was brought to you by Triennale Milano. It was written and presented by me, David Pleasant, with production support by the Triennale Milano team. 
Sound editing and design was by Alex Port Felix, and the theme music was created by John Arnold of Superdrama. <laughs> <laughs>